welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. In today's podcast, we have John Jungman, who is quickly becoming one of my favorite educators across America. Besides having an interesting story, um, being one of the youngest superintendents uh, in the country to the superintendent largest district in Missouri, John is someone who is constantly working with his team to innovate. On today's conversation, we dive into the power of a fail forward mentality. We talk about the importance of creating an entrepreneurial culture in your school district and how to do that. We talk about how to determine what student student success truly looks like. And we dive into uh, this program called the Launch Program, which is changing the name of the game for virtual education all across the state of Missouri. It's a wonderful conversation. John is very sincere, uh, very thoughtful, and again, to continue to use the word innovative. It's a great conversation that I know you'll enjoy. So please stay with us. John, I am so excited to have you here. Um, I'm sure you're kind of laughing because I probably operate like uh, Buddy the Elf in your world or just someone like we meet. I'm like, we're going to be best friends. We're going to hang out. We're going to golf. We're going to do all these things and we're going to learn. And I just... I, I want to name for you, and I, I've told you this before. Like I, what struck me about you is uh, you're incredibly forthright. Um, you're an outside the box thinker, and you're constantly sta- challenge the status quo, right? And so, it's refreshing to be around you because just a normal conversation that could be a throwaway conversation, I feel like I learn and grow. And I'm assuming most people around you probably feel the same way. So when we decided to branch out on this podcast and uh, start talking to superintendents as opposed to authors or uh, folks that are uh, thought leaders that are outside the, the superintendent seat, uh, you're the first name that came to mind. And so you are our first superintendent. And I just want to welcome you here to the Change Starts Your Podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. Uh, so uh, for those, you know, for those folks who don't know you, you know, the question that we always start our podcast with is, who are you and why do you love what you do? Yeah. So uh, number one, I'm a father of three uh, girls that uh, go through public education and give me my own education uh, on a daily basis and a husband to a a wonderful wife, Carrie, uh, for almost 25 years. And then, uh, you know, the third characteristic that I think I bring to the table is I'm an educator, educator at heart. And that's uh, why I do what I do is because I was inspired to be a teacher by teachers. And I'm the last of six kids in a traditional small Southwest Missouri town family, the first to go to college. And I went to college purely because teachers told me I could and I should. Uh, And I have three that are my heart, right? And I always tell the story of the three educators, right? That that really impacted my path. And one was my high school English teacher, Mary Kuhn. And she, I always call her my, you know, kind of my innovator. She uh, always gave me the ability to do things different than just the traditional curriculum. Uh, I, I was in her journalism class and I learned to write for the local newspaper because of her and got a job in that and really introduced me into the adult world and writing early on in my life. My second one is Chuck Blaney. He was my high school principal uh, and a great friend. And he was my encourager. 
right? He was my cheerleader every day saying that I could and I should uh, go to college and I should be an educator and a coach. Uh, and he helped me get there. And then my third one uh, is Tony Armstrong, and he was my basketball and my golf coach. And I always tell people he's my truth teller, right? So he'll cut to the chase and say, hey, dude, you're not going to make the team this year. You should spend more time with Mary Kuhn writing about the team because you're going to be much more effective at that. So I gave up basketball, but I wrote about every basketball game my sophomore, junior, senior year, and I was on the golf team. But those three educators really put me on a path to education, and I thank them for it. So uh, before I get back to the serious questions, because I've not heard this before, yeah. uh, you're clearly not a journalist. So did Mary Kuhn say, I love you, you need to go down something else, or <laughs> did that come later? Actually, I started down that path, right? And yeah. uh, I had this fortuitous understanding of what the world of journalism was going to look for, like 20 years later and said, that's a bad career path uh, <laughs> because it's going to shrink and it's going to go away. Really? No, I just got lucky because teachers inspired me and I became an English teacher and I uh, kind of walked and I taught right across the hall from her. So I walked in her footsteps in a different way. That's great. Uh, I think, uh, you know, for those of those people who don't know you, like I, I joke with you about being like Doogie Hauser of the superintendent world because you're, you know, very young, even though like you're very wise. Uh, can you just give a little bit of background of from the time you started teaching to where we are today, kind of what your careers look like? Yeah, so not by design is what I would tell you. That's the that's the key of my career path. I, I did go into teaching to be a teacher and a coach, and I planned to be that uh, forever. I went back to my original high school. I taught in the classrooms, uh, like I said, across from Mary Kuhn. I uh, had Coach Armstrong as a colleague. Uh, I got to coach basketball and coach golf and do all those things. Uh, but I was put on a path to administration by again, another set of school people, right? My uh, friend that was a middle school principal and a fellow coach and my high school principal, who are two of my best friends in the world, said, hey, you should jump in master's classes, right? Uh, the district helps reimburse for those. You're going to want to move on the salary schedule at some point. So jump in and ride with us on Wednesday nights. So I never took a semester off. I went straight from uh, my bachelor's to my master's to my specialist to my doctorate. I loved learning. I loved. Really? I hope so. <laughs> loved being with colleagues that uh, had a passion for growth, uh, and that's what put me on the path. So I taught for four years, and then had this opportunity to be an assistant principal at a high school in Monette, just about forty-five minutes down the road, uh, and that kind of put me on my career path for administration because. I got hired by uh, what I would say is my best mentor of all time, Charles Cudney, who was our superintendent and Monette at that time. And I got to spend six years under his supervision, two years as a high school AP and four years as a middle school principal. Uh, never taught middle school, never coached in middle. I mean, I coached in middle school, but he said, you should be a middle school principal. You're going to do it really well. And I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And then I had this awesome opportunity to follow him when he retired and become superintendent Monette. Uh, we're still connected today. We still uh, have this great mentor mentee relationship. And he, I think taught me more about school leadership than any person I'd ever dreamed. So Monette 10 years, then I had the opportunity to move to Liberty, spent two years, uh, a really uh, weird bubble in the career, awesome district, suburban of Kansas City, uh, lots of great things going for it. I was deputy superintendent one year, got the opportunity to move into the superintendency uh, the following year. 
And it was a really weird twist of fate that Springfield came open in that first year that I was officially superintendent. Uh, and I talked to my wife about, uh, you know, we have one more move in us probably, and Springfield gets us back close to home. Uh, and our kids were in middle school and elementary school. If we're going to make it, let's uh, kind of put it in God's hands, see what happens. So we, we put our name in for Springfield uh, and the rest is history. Been there seven years. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't think we'd go down this path, but you know, when you talk about moving the family, that's a real thing for anybody who is an aspirational leader, especially at a district level, there's going to be some moves in your family. How did you and your wife navigate uh, those tough conversations and tough decisions? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a hard one, right? I would say some uh, long grueling nights of what's the right thing to do and when's the right thing to do it. Right. Yeah. Uh, opportunities knock and you see doors open and you don't know whether it's the right move or not. You know, my passion around my job and service was always, if I get a chance to impact more kids, then I should look at it uh, in a district that has the same kind of heart and belief of what education should look like and, and are supporters of public education structures. So anytime that opened, we'd take a peek at it. Uh, but when it comes to actually executing that, I mean, we moved to four different houses in four years between a temporary move and then to a permanent move and then a temporary move into a permanent move. Uh, that's got some burden on the family. That's got some stress on children. Uh, so we're, we're really happy that we've settled it right now and we're in Springfield for seven years and we're going to stay here post retirement uh, from the superintendency. And as I move into the next journey, uh, but those moves, I do believe, right? And my kids, I think, would tell you the same thing. They added value to their life experience, right? Because now my daughter that's in college, she meets people really well. She's transitioned and she's got friends in Monat. She's got friends in Kansas City. She's got friends in Springfield. Uh, and those experiences, while challenging and sometimes painful, uh, added value, right, to uh, their life experience. So, yeah, I, I do think, I mean, obviously we're all, all product of our upbringing, right? And I feel like I went to a bunch of different schools for a bit there. And when I moved away from Florida to Texas and then Texas to Missouri to teach, um, I, I like your, like your daughters, your senior daughters. I just felt like I just wanted to meet people all the time. Like it was tough not to be anchored down, but having the paradigm of like, this is a new opportunity to meet amazing new people and go on amazing new adventures is pretty awesome. Um, it doesn't surprise me knowing your character that uh, you've probably developed that with your family. Um, <laughs> a, a question I, I do have, uh, I don't think I've asked you before is, you know, this, this podcast is about the messiness of change and growth, right? Uh, what were some of those bumps along the road to get, you know, to get to Springfield that like uh, you think about to this day that, you know, again, doesn't hold you prisoner, but like, you know, man, I wish I would have done that differently, but it taught me so much so I could be better today. Well, anytime you put yourself out there as a leader, whether you're aspiring to another job or you try something, right, and it, you either don't get the opportunity to serve or uh, that change that you're trying to help your building in, right, at the building level or even in the classroom level uh, as a teacher, when it doesn't hit just the way you thought it would, that's a challenging moment. Right. Uh, and I've had multiple of those. Right. I've had bond issue losses. I've had uh, opportunity. And that's where you're, you're putting yourself out there to the entire community. Right. And, and then you get to stand in front of the media at the end of the night and say, well, we gave it a good try. And then you have to own it. 
right? Uh, and you have to own how we're going to do better uh, on behalf of the kids in the community moving forward. Now that's the big scale. And then there's the scary stuff at home, right? Where you got to go home and reflect on, is that my leadership? Is it, uh, and oftentimes it is. So you got to spend some time processing and growing. And, and that's the key. It's all about growth. Do you, do you take that loss or that struggle as a uh, chink in the armor and then you get stronger because of it or do you take it as a devastating i can't go on from here and i've always tried to take every one of those that come our way as it's a learning opportunity uh it's just like the classroom when my kids struggled or flunked a test or didn't do well then we gave them a chance to be successful again and as long as they didn't quit they could move forward and do really good things so throughout my career i've had lots of those bumps uh, but each one of them's made me stronger for the next thing that was coming. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, you know, we've talked to a lot of really great leaders uh, on this podcast so far, and it, it feels like everyone embraces kind of the fail forward mentality, right? You got to take chances and sometimes it's going to reward itself. Sometimes it's going to really hurt, but you got to keep moving. Right. Yep. And I, and I kind of live my life by that theme. You got to get more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. And I try to challenge other leaders to do so uh, and challenge myself to do so. And uh, uncomfort is losing sometimes and you can't win everything. So, uh, but you got to be a bit more comfortable with some losses. Yeah. Let, let's kind of talk about that though, is that, you know, in, in public education, um, and I'm sure it's district to district, but one, one thing that I have felt for a long time and seen is, uh, some districts or some policies, state or federal, can suck the courage right out of a culture. Um, mm-hmm. And so how do you build that type of, that's great that you have it coming in a superintendent. Yeah, you answer the board, you'll figure it out, you'll land somewhere. But if I'm an assistant soup, if I'm a director, or a specialist, how are you building a culture where people are making courageous decisions and uh, kind of embracing failure on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, you know, I think the first thing, it's about the vision you cast, right? And the uh, safety you create for them to do so, right? So number one, you set the cast, the vision that uh, by asking really deep questions about what's the horizon, not what's today, right? And I say, where are we going to need to be in the future and on behalf of our kids in our community? And are we there today? No. Then what's it take to get there? And what kind of courage is it going to take to get there? Uh, and then giving them the room to go and be courageous and model that same courage, right? That we are going to push harder. We're going to make people more uncomfortable. We understand that we're going to take shots along the way. And as a leader, you got to be willing to take the shots first, right? So if you don't model courage uh, and standing up and saying that we will take a risk and innovate and do something different than we did in the past. And uh, then don't expect any of your other leaders to do it. Right. Uh, and then when they do and they fail, then don't be afraid to take the bullet for them. Right. I mean, I think that's, that's how you give them the courage to do it again. Uh, you give them the flexibility to fail and then you coach them behind the scenes, right. About how they can get there the next time. Uh, but you uh, as the leader have to be willing to take the arrows right on both your actions and your team's actions. Then you hold them accountable uh, to growth uh, and then they'll get there. When you started answering, you said something along the lines of, uh, kind of visualizing what like success, the end in mind looks like. And I, I think when we first met, you were describing to me when you got to Springfield, I guess, what is it? Seven years ago now, eight years ago, <laughs> seven years ago, um, about, and I may get the, the name wrong, but something around like an imagine process where you and the whole district went through. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Cause I think that's what kind of laid the groundwork for all the rest of your culture, right? 
Yeah, I think that was uh, kind of where we started. And we we did two uh, processes. One was imagine, right? And it basically came down to this question. If I could, I would, right? So if I didn't have the things that you just talked about, any barriers, whether they be financial or bureaucracy or tradition or history, and if I could redesign, right, on the best interest of kids and the outcomes that we desire, what would it look like, right? So let's dream. And uh, we used some design thinking processes. We brought kids and parents and community leaders to the table uh, to think, right? And just to play in a space that was safe about what's possible for the future. And then we used that, right, to drive a strategic planning uh, process called envisioning excellence, which was our next step. So here's what people dreamt about, right? Here's what we know we still have to manage our way through, right? Because the bureaucracy is not dead, right? And there are still things that we have to meet at the state and federal level. uh, And they're important factors, but they're not it, Right. So imagine kind of brought us to what else is there. And it brought and then uh, envisioning excellence reminded us of the things that we can't leave. And then we ended up with a strategic plan that hopefully touches on both. Right. And I always say that you have to have a foot in today and a foot in tomorrow as a leader, especially at this level. And I think the strategic plan did both. Right. It kept us rooted in the things that we needed to make sure we did really well. But it also pushed us to think about things that were not in the current plan. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I'm intrigued to know more about is how you uh, determined what student success looked like. Uh, what, like when you think about student success or when your district thinks about student success, what does that mean to you all? Yeah. Well, the, the way that I started that conversation in Springfield was a community-wide survey. And I, I listed 10 uh, success metrics, right? From the traditional grade level reading, graduation rate, uh, employment after high school, right? Uh, college success, ACT score, attendance, and said, all right, parents, teachers, uh, kids, give me feedback. And I got uh, probably 10,000 responses or so. And then we kind of, and we just did a pure rank and sort. If you were going to rank these as most important from your perspective in the world, what are they? Uh, And for the most part, the metrics weren't the traditional education metrics, right? They weren't the uh, reading score. They weren't the map score. They weren't necessarily even the attendance rate. What they often were was a job after school, right? Independence in life, the ability to uh, make effective decisions, uh, analyze multiple pieces of data, those kind of things. Uh, And one of the most interesting ones, and I'll, I'll say it wrong, but was around feedback, right? That, uh, you know, was that an important metric that if kids liked their education experience, right? All the adults said, it didn't matter. I don't care if they like their experience. You know what the kids said? My experience should be good, right? I should like it, right? It was like number one for them and like nine and 10 for parents and teachers. So we had this little paradigm, uh, right? Misalignment. Uh, so we took all of that to say uh, that, these state outcomes and federal outcomes are really important. You know, grad rates really important, right? Cause you can't get to the other things without it. And we know that inputs in that grad rate are, you know, whether or not you can read and do numeracy, right? But that can't be it. And our parents said that can't be it. There are other things that lead to life success. Uh, so we made sure that the strategic plan enveloped other things, right? To, to the mission, right? Of an engaging, relevant personal experience that we get those outcomes through really quality inputs, right? And that's through relationships with kids, personal experiences, giving them a depth of uh, 
experiences that are beyond just academic core learning, right, on a daily basis. And that's why we have so many theme-based magnet schools uh, that we believe we can best teach our curriculum and content by tying it to reality, real world, real world experiences, uh, both at the elementary level and at the 12th grade level. Yeah, I think, I mean, you just named your mission within there. So engaging, relevant, personal, right? I think this is a simple phrase. And if I'm, you know, I put my skeptic hat on as I'm listening and I'm like, well, you know, districts I've worked with, we've gone through, we call it an imagine process, whatever we call it, we've gone through it, we've gotten feedback, we've come up with our pithy saying words, whatever. Um, and the thing I know about you is that you want to make sure you're delivering always. You're not good. You don't want to stop there. How have you all and how do you all make sure you're executing on the three words that you think are most important, engaging, relevant, and personal? Yeah. So the things that we did different, uh, I believe, uh, this in this process is we put those types of learning experience in the strategic plan, right? So if you go to goal three, right? Goal two is academic success, right? It's all about the traditional metrics, but goal three is about the four C's, right? Making sure that kids uh, can communicate, critically think, uh, and have those skills as they leave us. And we developed a portrait of a graduate. When they leave us, right, we want academic success as a core component, but we also want these other important aspects. And we measure those in a number of ways. So we've, we've, we're deploying a learner portfolio, number one. So you're going to not just show us your grade card, but you're going to show us some of the activities and the experiences that you've had. Uh, we also uh, started to embed more uh, of that type of learning, K-12, right? So really project-based environments uh, were built into uh, our curriculum more uh, successfully, I think, K-12. We also put in climate and culture metrics into our report cards. So our buildings and our district uh, report uh, to the board uh, our progress on not just our academic measures, but our climate and culture. And that's going to have relationships in its core. It's going to have student engagement feedback from our kids uh, directly to our teachers and at the building level. Uh, so that's where we get, you know, it's engaging, relevant, personal experience. We get these climate and culture metrics. They're fed back to the district level, the building level, and to the teacher level. Uh, and that directs, you know, our success because we believe that those go hand in hand. Those inputs, right, of engaging relevant personal experiences lead to all the outcomes that we want for our kids and not just the academic and the grad rate and those things critical, but life success. Yeah. How, what have y'all done, you know, when it comes to personal connection, I just had a, a 7 a.m. call this morning with a high school kind of looking to trying to solve a few challenges, but one of the challenges that they have, there are 4,000 kid high school. So I don't know if you have any schools that are that big, but still, whether it's, you know, 500 or a thousand or 2,000, 4,000, whatever, um, it's still a challenge, especially at the high school level to create personal connections so that okay. every kid is known. What have y'all done to try to tackle that challenge? One of the first things, and this is in the metric of our school card, is getting kids engaged in extracurricular programming. And we did this in Liberty, and we put it in our scorecard uh, also here, is that we know when they're engaged beyond the school day, yep. they're more personally connected, right, with a coach or at, with uh, other friends, right? So that's one thing. So we monitor the level of engagement at secondary level and extracurricular programming, and we've expanded uh, significantly just to find something extra to do. 
we also ask kids, right? Do you have that relationship? And we look for that data to see how we can regularly build that relationship. And then we deploy interventions, primarily at the high school level. Uh, when we talk about, we have graduation mentors and coaches and other counseling positions that are about finding those kids that haven't found success and don't have a connection uh, that's meaningful and giving it to them, right? And regularly coaching them up on how it's gonna, what it's gonna take to get to success or to get across what we call the start line, not the finish line, because that absent the diploma and the necessary skills to earn it, your ability to be very successful in life is limited, right? Uh, and that's in being dependent, being able to be a contributor to society. It's not written off, but it's a, it's a tough road to hoe if you can't get there. Yeah, I think um, one of my first, so as I think about, again, coming back to your mission of engaging relevant personal. And so that that dives into the, the challenge of the personal connections. Uh, one of the coolest things when I first really learned about your district probably seven, six years ago, way before we met. Um, I remember learning about the school, the, the school you have in a Bass Pro Shop, the school I think you have in a hospital. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that is? And then the question that I think is a million dollar question is, how can you guys, I'm sure you can take care of a with 27,000 or 30,000, however many students you have now, I'm sure you can take care of a segment of students within those options. How are you trying to scale that? Yeah. And that was one of the things that we, when I walked in, uh, I didn't start Choice, right? Or our magnet programs, they had existed before, but they weren't scaling, right? And there wasn't a way to touch more kids with the experience. Right. But everybody that went to it said it was amazing, right? So, and we need more of it, right? I mean, we'd have a long list of people that were on the waiting list, ready to go. Uh, so we know it created value and it created, rel I mean, the thing it did was relevance, right? Because it, it gave me a way to see the curriculum through a more relevant way. And it's around conservation. We have one around healthcare. We have one uh, that we're building right now all around agriculture, a brand new one for 150 uh, plus students. It's going to be our largest ever. We just opened one around arts, right? So each of these experiences, they're small and Fortunately, they're 50 to 150 kids, uh, but, but they're giving us the place that we're able to learn about what's most engaging in that environment. It's not often the building. Bass Pro's cool, yeah. right? But it's the curriculum and it's the learning experience. It's the teacher and how they're making it come alive. So yeah. we try to transfer that right back to the base classroom. Uh, and we do it through a number of ways. One of the ways is we tried to build it into explore, right? That's, and we blew up our summer learning program from 3000 to 12,000 kids in uh, our first three years. Now we've hovered around eight to 10 over the last couple of years, but in that summer experience, we cover all the academic uh, essentials that kids need, right? And if they're struggling, we give them intervention and supports, but we do it around an explore motif, right? Of We're going to go explore our community and you're going to get a theme-based experience that has outside of the building experiences as well as outside of the traditional classroom experience. Uh, so we, we learned in our magnets, we expanded it to explore, and then we're trying to embed more and more into the regular classroom. So that's kind of the path. And then at the high school level, we've taken it to the even a deeper level where we've deployed two academies uh, at two of our high schools uh, where kids will actually choose a track, right? Based on some career interests they may have. Now they can shift uh, if they want to go one way or another, but then the courses are embedded, right? They have content and experiences embedded in the courses based on things of their interest. So we're trying to tie student interest to student experiences and the core learning and then 
engagement goes through the roof uh, and success goes up. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by your, uh, your summer approach because I feel like many districts look at remediation for the summertime. And what's, what's the paradigm or lens that you guys have looked at uh, your summer options through? Yeah. Well, I think when we said that we were just looking at it that way, we were getting about three kids to show up. And when we rebrand or 3000 kids to show up, we rebranded it uh, and said, we can do this better and still accomplish all the remediation and supports, uh, but which a much deeper level of experience and excitement. Right. So we flipped it from that to explore still has the essentials in it. And we, you know, multiplied it times three, right? Uh, almost times four over just a couple of years. So uh, kids will come. They want to do exciting things. Their parents uh, trust them to keep learning with us uh, and love the opportunity. If we can build it uh, well, they'll show up. Yeah. What's, I mean, first off, that's amazing. So I, I don't, my, my question that I'm going to ask isn't to uh, uh, tamper down my excitement for going from 3,000 to 12,000 or 8,000, 10,000, whatever we have now. It's amazing. Um, but I know that you're someone who wants to measure impact and success. So what are those ways that you think about? All right, great. That's going well. How do we know what, what impact are you hoping it to have? Or are you seeing that it's having? Yeah. I mean, you always wanted to hear hit your core metrics, right? Uh, so reading right over the last five years, we would tell you that our reading has consistently grown systemically and we, and our state data would tell you that five years, K eight year over year over year. And we think holding some learning loss drops that do happen over the summer. That's very well documented uh, is partially to been, I mean, partially uh, accredited uh, to credit for that. Now, math, uh, we haven't cracked the nut, right, to be honest. We, we've been sporadic. We've been up and down, and uh, and we're really diving deeper into that and teacher training and supports and how we uh, go further. Uh, but then uh, the other thing is customer satisfaction, right? Do kids continue to come back? Do parents want them to be a part of this? Do teachers want to teach in it? Uh, and for the most part, we've seen year over year that uh, there's something quality that's happening there. Uh, and then uh, we also measure it on the number of partners now pre-COVID, we'd have a hundred plus community partners where we would truly take our kids out into the community and try to embed at least one daily experience outside of their school day. Uh, now, obviously the world changed last year and we had to uh, tamp that down significantly and it will be scaled back this year, yep. but we're clamoring for a day and a time when, uh, you know, we're back out with the fire department and the engineers and our city utilities and our, our architectural firms. Uh, and we don't just do it with teachers or we don't just do it with kids. One of the other things that we do is is we actually partner with our Chamber of Commerce to deploy teachers out into learning environments and experiences in the summer uh, because they want to continue to grow. And often we have a lot of teachers that understand that their path to the classroom was very traditional. It was classroom, classroom, classroom. And there's some things out in the industry uh, that industries that they can learn to come and make more, their classroom more real and more engaging for kids. So we deploy uh, through our chamber and with our other community uh, local uh school districts, uh, 50 to 100 teachers at least every summer to go out and do uh, externships in business. That's really neat. I, uh, I keep hearing the importance of community relationships, and I feel like most districts understand that that's important, but I don't know if many have systems that are set up to really help the community engage in a way that helps the district accomplish their end in mind. What systems have you guys put in place to really 
kind of make that marriage a win-win for everybody? Yeah. So a couple of things. Number one, we have a person that that's their job, right? Partnerships uh, that uh, as part of learning support and explore that we have someone that goes out and builds those partnerships. Right. Uh, we've also contracted some of that work right, with our chamber of commerce and our caps program, which is uh, an embedded high school experience. Uh, they help build the partnerships because they know the businesses and they know what the businesses are asking for uh, when it comes to outcomes. Uh, and they help be the conduit that connects our education environment and our business environment. So those are two uh, important ways. Uh, the other, I think, is our overall department of learning, support, and innovation. Uh, that group is always working to see what's the next choice program, right? Uh, that where the gaps are that our parents would engage with and who's the right business partner that would love to host kids outside of our environment, whether that be an industry or whether that be a, uh, you know, just a new partner that we haven't had the opportunity to talk about how to connect them with our school district. And we're so blessed to have so many great community partners that are always willing to step up. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it seems natural to you, but you named a couple of, you know, part of the Explorer program, and you've got a, a position that's underneath that you're listing uh, job descriptions or titles that don't actually exist in most districts. So what I hear is, again, coming back to the beginning, setting our vision with the community of what success looks like, and then hopefully having a board that allows you to kind of restructure to go after those. Is that accurate or... 100%, right? And when I did my uh, learning report after 90 days to the board, I said one of the most important things that I had to do was restructure the organizational's leadership chart mm -hmm. and create space for innovation, right? And at that point, an executive director of innovation was created uh, and they have some other supports. But if you don't make space and make time and make it intentional, uh, you expect it to happen, you're, you're going to fail on that, right? And, and K-12 is not known, right? Or many educational institutions, right? To be places of innovation or places that have space because we have so much urgency on the current things that we're just trying to execute that with spending time or money or having a conversation about what's next and how we can do it better uh, often gets pushed to the, the back burner, right? So we intentionally made space for it. We intentionally made a department out of that and it's created and been responsible for deploying additional magnet schools, the growth of Explore, the growth of our virtual program, our launch program that uh, has moved, not just serving SPS now, but statewide. All of those things really fueled out of our innovation team, uh, or they might've existed, but the innovation team talked about how we could take it to the next level. Right. Yeah, I think, yeah, I know our time is coming to an end here shortly. So can you dive in a little bit into the launch program and talk about the crazy uh, impact it's having, not just in your district, but many other districts? Yeah, it's been quite a ride, right? And I, I can't uh, pretend that I had a crystal ball to, number one, uh, know when a pandemic would hit and number two, to understand exactly when legislative changes would impact us. But I did know what I'd seen in other states, right? And that's, and here's what I'd seen. Uh, all across the nation, for-profit virtual education providers were having access to public education kids and, and taking what I would call an unfair amount of money away from public schools as they took that child away from them and de delivering them a subpar product. Uh, with 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 teachers that weren't 
from Missouri, didn't know the kid, didn't know, or from that state, didn't know the kid, weren't connected uh, with zero real accountability right, uh, of actual delivering results. So I didn't want to see that happen to our district. So, and I knew the writing was on the wall that the Missouri legislation was going to shift to allow more access. And I'm fine with the access because it's solving a real problem. Those, those companies existed because there was a problem. Course access wasn't there, right? And 500 plus Missouri districts, the ability for all schools and all kids to have access to high level content or foreign language courses uh, and those types of things in all of our districts, it's, it's not real. So there needed to be a solution. I just believe it's better done uh, by a collaborative public education entity than for a, than a, no offense, a for-profit entity that has a profit motive instead of a purpose motive. And ours is number one, always to serve our kids successfully. And we built launch, turned our online program, which we had 50 courses we'd been investing in since 2012. Uh, and we're serving our own students, right? That needed one-off sections and solving our course access issues. But just solving our kids' problems wasn't going to solve Missouri's problems, which made us a target, right, uh, for these other providers and other solutions. So we uh, had the permission of our board to turn that on statewide. We made a small additional investment to add some additional developers to add some courses. We created a statewide advisory committee made up of uh, stakeholders from across our state that advise us on exactly what the needs are. And we went from zero members to 350 member districts three years later. Uh, now, through that, the state law changed, the pandemic happened, uh, and virtual education became a necessity for every district. Uh, and we just happened to be there ready to support them. And our theme is, uh, I think it touches uh, local districts and most Missourians. It's our uh, launch is designed, developed and delivered by Missouri educators for Missouri kids. Uh, and that's what we believe. So we hire Missouri educators, we design and develop our own courses. We hire Missouri teachers from our partner districts. Uh, and we do that all uh, at a much lower cost than those that were taking our resources and running out of state with them to pay you know, corporate profits. Uh, and all of our money goes right back into Missouri uh, and into Missouri teachers' pockets. Uh, so it's been an amazing journey. Uh, we served, you know, thousands of kids from across the state last year. Uh, and we're just, we were blessed that we had it during a pandemic. Wasn't designed for it. It wasn't perfect. Uh, but we're getting better, uh, and it will right-size itself after the pandemic. You know, virtual education is not going away, but it will come back to a more manageable size post-pandemic because I want my kids in seated environments. We're pushing them back uh, because we believe that that one-on-one -on -one relationship is of high value, but we also know that there's a segment of parents and kids that were very successful in virtual, and we better continue to do it and do it well. I, that I, I forget who I was talking to uh, recently, but I, I ran a panel for uh, high school students. And for me and my wife, we're just very social animals. So the idea of not going back to an in-person environment just would not cross our minds, you know, mm -hmm. even with our students. But I was talking to about five students and one of the students has been virtual all year. And he said, there's no chance he's going back, not because he hates high school. He loves learning the way he's learning. He, it's helping him meet his needs. He doesn't miss the drama that happens at the high school level and he can still be connected through extracurriculars or whatever else. And so uh, I do think, like you said, I do think that's going to be something that stays to what degree, who knows, but that's definitely something we need. 
Yeah, it's a niche, right? I mean, it's not whole scale reform. It, but and we learned that pre pandemic, we knew that this was meeting the needs of a population of our students that right. wasn't comfortable in our school setting, uh, wasn't getting you know the attention, and they actually would tell us that we got more one on one and more deep relationships through our virtual learning environment and our teachers uh, in that setting than we ever did in a seated environment. So it was meeting the needs of a group. Uh, it increased for a COVID pandemic response, but now it's going to go back to its original design, I think. Right. Um, so, John, our time is running out, uh, and I want to end with the same question we ask everybody, which is, you know, from, from your seat, uh, what's our goal is to just inspire change in everybody, right, and to, to encourage people to get better. What's the best piece of advice you have for folks who are aspiring to lead, currently leading folks, or aspiring to be leaders um, that you can give us right now? Yeah, uh, I, I spent some time reflecting because you told me that you know I might get a chance to end on that, right? And I, I won't give you a bunch of nuggets, but I've got a, a small list. So number one, commit to serve others first, right? So uh, if you're, especially in the public sector, I show up because I have 25,000 kids that are counting on me and I've got 900,000 in Missouri that I really care deeply about. Uh, and I value the public education culture that we have, what it's done for me, what it's done for my kids. So my commitment is to serve others first. Uh, and if you bring that to the table, uh, you're normally going to make pretty good decisions. Number two, surround yourself with a balanced team. Uh, don't just hire people like you, uh, because it's really easy to get yourself in an echo chamber and think you have all the right answers, but you have to have different talents and thoughts around you. Uh, I, I need people that are high empathy, high execution. I've got strategy, right? And I've got thoughts about how to get there, but I need to be surrounded by a balanced team. So I always encourage others to think about what are the holes and what are the gaps and how do you fill them? So that's kind of number two. And I already covered number three is create space and time for innovation, right? And if you don't do it, it won't happen uh, accidentally. Uh, you might be forced into innovation by a crisis, right? Like a pandemic, uh, but it's not going to be very good because you didn't take time to do it very well. So uh, take time and space to create that. Uh, you, you heard me talk about the other one, find partners, right? Uh, don't, don't do this in isolation. Over and over, you heard me talk about it's really good to bring people to the table that, number one, they make your ideas better. Number two, they provide collective cover, right? Because when you can do it together, right, it's not as dangerous as doing it in isolation by yourself. So uh, bring those partners to the table. And number five, uh, be courageous, right? Uh, leadership's not for the faint of heart, right? You're going to take arrows. You're going to have to make hard decisions, uh, but you'll survive, right? Uh, and number six is my last one. And uh, if, if you desire to be loved as a leader, get a dog uh, because there, there's, there's times when you're going to have to do number five, you're going to have to be courageous. You're going to have to make hard decisions. You're going to have to go home and think that the world hates me. Uh, but if you've got a nice little uh, seven pound wiener dog, when you walk in that jumps on your lap, it, it kind of makes the world feel a little better. That's so true. Uh, although there's a, uh, you know, we've talked before, I've got a, a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, soon to be five and an eight-month-old. And I looked at my wife the other day, uh, my oldest son's best friend has a new puppy. And I looked at my wife, I was like, we need a puppy. And she goes, I'd rather right now, just given where she's at, she's a teacher staff or her school district. So she's busy. She's like, I'd rather have a new baby. And I do not need another baby right now. I'm like, the oh. timing's important. Timing's yeah. important. <laughs> so I've got to, I've got to wait for that, but I'm going to use this clip to share with my wife. Uh, so John, I don't know at this point, I know, you know, over the next, uh, 
month or few months, you'll be transitioning out of your role as superintendent. And uh, I have to imagine there's going to be people who are going to want to just learn from you more. And so uh, is there a way right now, and if there's not, we can add it into somehow in the meeting notes or something later. If people want to get to know you, reach out. Is there some place they can find you? Yeah. Uh, you know, always my LinkedIn uh, or my Twitter account. Feel free to reach out through either one of those locations through notifications yep. uh, at, at John Jungman. Uh, it's pretty simple and not hard to find. And I'd, I'd love to engage. I, uh, I am going to miss the superintendency, but when I walk away, I am going to have more time for conversations with others uh, regarding what's possible and what the future looks like. And I, I look forward to it. Well, I hope uh, our friendship gets to blossom during that time of uh, more flexibility for you. So thank you so much for being our first superintendent to join this. This was an incredibly inspiring uh, and educational conversation. And I look forward to possibly having you back in the future. Thanks for having me. It's been an honor. Yeah. Thanks, John. Appreciate you. Take care. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcasts on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.